Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. episode for you. Last week we talked about um, the importance of social workers being aware of the rights of this community and we said that we were going to be doing a presentation to a class of potential social workers or future social workers. Yeah, I think so, it was like a child development and like eligibility, or not eligibility, it was like diagnosis. Yeah, so it was like it was grad students at Azusa Pacific that were going to become social workers. So um, I think they were getting their master's in social work and the class was like a developmental. It was relating to children and adolescent diagnoses, which includes mm-hmm. discussions about intellectual and learning disabilities. And it was really cool because the class, we always ask whenever we do it in front of a class or a group presentation and we kind of get an idea of the demographics of how familiar they are with um, children with special needs and so luckily I think I'd say like 95% of the class had some familiarity or had worked with children living with disabilities so that was helpful. Yeah, so this is a peek into the our presentation format, which is just very similar to our podcast format, um, and it was for uh, these Azusa Pacific University students, so we hope you enjoy it as much as they enjoyed it. And if you enjoy the format of the presentation, like we've said in the past, we do these presentations for free for organizations, for schools, for you know college students, or if you're an administrator at an elementary school and you want us to do it for your staff, we are happy to do that, so yeah, just, just let us know. Reach out at info at iepcalifornia.org. Enjoy. What if we were just like, Azusa Pacific? Like, what if we were just different when we started this presentation and you guys were like, that was really weird. Okay, so general question before we get started. How many of you have actually worked with children living with special needs? Okay, quite a few of you. Um, Anyone have anyone in the family? Okay, a couple of you. We know that that often um, is how sometimes people get into it. This is how Vicki got into this field. And so a, a lot of... You um, can't just not bring up Ken because he listens to the podcast. I figured you'd so jump in with that. He, my cousin Ken is 23. We've had him on the podcast. He um, is on the spectrum. And uh, so we had a podcast where he was talking about, you know, what it's like being, you know, high-functioning autism. And so he listens, so... You can't just drop him in without saying, hi, Ken. Hope you're having a good day. I'm sure he's listening to the podcast. That's true. That's true. He's uh, listening to the podcast where he's famous, so. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay, so we'll, we'll jump right in. So special education is, is mostly governed by an idea of what is special education, and a lot of our job as attorneys is to really define. There are words that would be very typical in the English language, appropriate education, and you may know them as certain definitions under the Webster's Dictionary, but in the legal field, they have many different meanings. Our world revolves a lot around the word appropriate. What is appropriate for these children? Um, it's supposed to be on a one-on-one basis, but it's often, often not the case. So we're dealing with um, special education is a free public, a free and appropriate public education, or a FAPE. It's specifically designed instruction to meet the unique needs of that individual child. So what should be happening is everything that 
the child is receiving in school is geared towards their individual needs. Not what's going on in the classroom, not what another child in the classroom needs, but what they specifically need. But a lot of times that requires a little bit more expertise, it requires a little bit more money, and so it's not always the case that it's, it's as individualized as it should be. But that is what the law requires, that you're creating an individualized education plan or an IEP to set forth what type of education this child is going to get based on their unique needs. So the federal law is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. That's the main law that we're governed by. So that is a federal law that covers all states. However, Congress left it up to the states to um, expand on those rights a little bit more. Here in California, we're pretty lucky because we have additional requirements under the California Education Code. So for instance, with timelines, there are specific timelines in California, whereas the rest of the country, a lot of states have this reasonableness <laughs> where it's not an official timeline. In California, we have parent requests an IEP meeting. It has to be done within 30 days, very specific. So. A lot of times we talk about the federal law, that's the IDEA. And so Amanda already touched on a couple of the um, words, the key buzzwords, right? So we have under the Individuals with Disability Education Act, a FAPE, a free appropriate public education. Everybody knows what public education is, everybody knows what free means, so our job is to argue what is appropriate. So. One of the things, the hallmarks of the law is that parent is an equal participant in the process. So you have school psychologists, you have social workers, you have the child's karate instructor that's at an IEP meeting. All those people know something about the child with special needs. However, oftentimes the parent, one, feels like they are not an equal participant. You have the parent and then you have 10 people from the district across, sitting across from you saying like, oh no, your child can't do this and you're a parent and you're like, I know that he can, so how do I express it? So it's a hallmark um, where parents should be the equal participant, but oftentimes, I speak Spanish, so a lot of the clients, a lot of my clients are oftentimes marginalized, they are not given a voice, and they are definitely not an equal participant. Basic things such as the IEP being translated into their native language doesn't happen for weeks on end. So I use that a lot in the, the complaints that I bring against school districts. And another one of the hallmarks is least restrictive environment. So <clears throat> when you're looking at a child and you would like the child to be with their general education peers, that is the least restrictive environment. Children learn from other children and we need to start there. So oftentimes what we see is you have a preschooler diagnosed with autism at two and a half by a doctor, that's a medical diagnosis. They get turned over from the regional center to the school district at two and a half for assessments to be completed. School determines that, okay, there's autism, but not in the sense of you just have a medical diagnosis. This autism is affecting the child's access to their education. At preschool, okay, the access is just pre-academics, right? So they're saying, you know, oh, the child's withdrawn or they're very focused in or they're not paying attention, you know, for whatever reason. And what ends up happening is the parents go to that meeting and the districts go, okay, so we're gonna go to um, preschool, it's a special day class, and it's gonna be great, it's gonna be small, we're gonna give them all these services and we're gonna get them into a mainstream kindergarten class. Well, in a regular preschool setting, if you're learning how to come to carpet time and sit and you know maybe the days of the week, 
oftentimes in a special education classroom, you're not learning that, right? And so how are you prepared for kindergarten if you're already behind? So oftentimes we go back to the LRE, least restrictive environment, and we say this child should be placed with children that are typical. And because you know, preschool is a little different because it's not mandated, but oftentimes we see parents that want to privately place can get reimbursement for that because LRE is so strong. We want these children to be around and, and be given a chance to be around typical peers as early as possible. Yeah, so LRE is probably one of the most heavily litigated concepts um, because oftentimes kids at that preschool level are placed into the special education class. The school districts promise the parents, this is a class that's geared towards prepping your child for general education kindergarten. What happens two years later when they get around to kindergarten is, well, they don't have the skills that they need in kindergarten. So the minute a child is placed in a special day class, more often than not, it's so difficult to get out because the curriculum of the general education class keeps growing and because of the innate ability of the special day class to be at a slower pace, you're automatically going to be increasing that gap each year. So the difficulty to get back into the general education class increases each year the child is in a special day class. Um, what we see in this country so often, and it's really sad because in other countries it's even worse because they don't even have special education laws. but Bradley Board of Education was established many, many years ago, right? And everyone knows that as law, and everyone thinks, okay, separate is not equal, separate is not equal. Unfortunately, for children living with special needs, this is something that happens every single day. It wasn't too long ago when our parents or our grandparents were in school, there were no kids with special needs within the education system because they were allowed to be denied access altogether. Now that we have the IDEA, they're not allowed to be denied access, and technically, we have this concept of LRE, where children should be in the least restrictive environment to the maximum extent possible. However, the reality is, is more often than not, kids with, living with disabilities are placed in these segregated classes where they're not provided access to the general education peers. They're not provided access to general education curriculum, right? And so we know that children are more likely to learn from peers that are above their level. We always say in special education, you don't want your kid to be the big fish in the small pond. You want them to be the small fish in the big pond because they're more likely, especially like if they're nonverbal, if they're in a class where everyone else is nonverbal, how are they gonna learn to speak? Because kids are gonna learn more to be verbal from kids than adults. And that's just something that, I mean, there is research that shows that. But we have school districts that say, oh, well, you know, they're not gonna gain any benefit. Um, I remember we see trends in school districts all the time because they go to their conferences and they learn tips and tricks and unfortunately those tips and tricks are how to save money, right? So I had a, a number of probably 10 IEPs. Um, you know, this was a situation where, this was a number of years ago, so this wasn't recent. Um, I had uh, probably 10 IEPs in the same school over the course of two weeks. And every kid was all different. Some of them were in different classes. But each of them had at least a little bit of mainstreaming in the general education class, whether it be 10 minutes, an hour, or maybe half of their day. They all had reasons for why they were in the general education class for mainstreaming. For some of it, it was academics. Maybe they were um, better at math, and so we were you know, in there for academics a little bit. Some of it was social, for them to gain more social participation. For others, it was to become more verbal. But in the course of those 10 IEP meetings, every single student, every single parent was told, there is no benefit your child will gain from being in the general education class. Same statement I got every single kid. They had all different various of levels of abilities, but I got that same statement. 
I don't know where in any research that that is true, because um, it's not. Even kids who are very low functioning and are nonverbal can gain at least something from being physically in that class because they are looking at their peer models. So this LRE, and especially for me, because I came from a general education class where kids were fully included and it worked. For me, when I go to IEPs and I'm told this can't be done, I go, that's funny because I, I did it. And one of the things that we can use are assessments, right? Like there should be data, there should be baselines for why this is not working, especially if, uh, as Amanda was saying, she saw it in 10 different kids with 10 different eligibilities with, you know, within, you know, whatever programming that the district had. So with assessments, oftentimes what parents get hung up on, um, and a lot of times the parents that I work with get hung up on, is that a doctor has diagnosed a child with dyslexia, with autism, and the school is not necessarily naming that in the IEP. And it's because they are saying, oh, the child is eligible for special education under other health impairment. And there's another slide, it'll show you the 13 eligibility categories, but other health impairment is kind of almost like a catch-all. We see a lot of kids with ADHD. It's just indicating that there is some type of health impairment that's affecting the child's access to the education. What's access to education? I argue that all the time. So I don't have a, a, a actual definition for you, but we just we use it because that's oftentimes what districts are arguing. Well, the child's not accessing the, the general education setting appropriately. And okay, well, why? Where are your assessments? Did you take behavioral assessments? Is there functional data behavior um, or data that you've taken down? What specifically about this general education class or supports and aids that you have used or not used have worked. So that's what we do when we try to kind of pick apart these general statements that a lot of districts have. And it's important for you to understand that because as a developmental class and you seeing what it is that a, a, a diagnosis means, it is a bit different in the educational setting because we are not dealing with doctors. You know, school psychologists typically have their, their BS um, they don't have their doctorate or master's. Some of them do, um, and they can be categorized as licensed educational psychologists, but oftentimes the run-in that we have is that the actual assessment is completed, the numbers are there, and the interpretation of that information and data is skewed for whatever it is that the district wants. If the district wants you in a special day class, they'll make sure that they interpret this material so that you're in that special day class. Yeah, so a lot of students get referred from the regional center at about two and a half because they're required, if they have any type of special needs, they should be assessed at the age of three to determine whether or not they need services within the preschool setting. So that's a typical case of the kid who was diagnosed between birth to three they're receiving services from the regional center, they get referred to the school district. But what happens about those kids that don't get early diagnosed? Or they don't have a typical disability of autism or Down syndrome, right? So when we look at assessments, how do assessments get started? Well, the parents can ask for assessments at any time if they feel that there's a suspicion of a disability. So it's not a diagnosis, you don't need an official paper that says my child has a disability. If there's any suspicion that there's some impairment that is affecting your child's education, you as a parent are entitled to ask for that assessment. But that's not the only way. There's a child find obligation in the law that requires school districts to identify and locate all children who have special needs within their school district, whether they are in a public school or not. Now, more often than not, that's one of the biggest issues that we see is that children are not identified. But one thing that we want you guys all to know is that you, as people who are going to be working with these children, have a right to ask for assessments yourself. 
because maybe the parents are not aware of their rights, or maybe culturally they're a little weary about having that label. Anyone that has any knowledge or experience with the child has a right to ask for an assessment. The best way to do that is send a letter to the school and the district say, I work with this child in this capacity. I feel that there is something impacting their ability to access their education or the impacting their learning. And I feel that they need to be assessed. And the minute that you do that, the minute that the soccer coach does that, the minute that the parent does that, the school district has an obligation to create an assessment plan to conduct an assessment. And that assessment must be in all areas of suspected disability. So in, in, you see some areas listed here on you know, what areas need to be assessed. One thing that we find a lot of times is maybe the child has a diagnosis of autism, but they're pretty high functioning and they're, they're a little delayed in speech. So the school district says, oh, parent, what is your concerns? Or they ask anyone that's working with the child, what are your concerns? And one of the biggest things that they might say is, well, they're nonverbal or their communication skills are a little delayed, but they're not aware of all the other areas that could be assessed, right? So they're only bringing up the biggest things that they are aware of. And so the school district says, okay, great, we'll do an assessment for speech and language. So they look at the assessment, they say there's a delay um, with communication or with language, so we're gonna find you eligible, we're gonna give you speech and language. But then what happens a couple years later is there were other underlying areas that were never addressed and now are impacting them more heavily. So when we have an initial assessment, we really should be looking at all areas of suspected disability. The school district has that, that obligation to identify all areas. So it's important that if you are requesting an assessment or if you're consulting with a parent on requesting an assessment, you know, even if they say, well, these are my two top concerns, look at the other areas and say, are there possible difficulties? So occupational therapy, looking at their fine motor. If even if they're really young or they're, let's say they're in third grade and their penmanship is just horrific. Maybe there's a fine motor deficit, right? So anything, it may be small, but anything that may be affecting them should be at least assessed. There's an obligation to assess. Now, if the assessment comes back and there's, there's not a huge area of deficit, it's not impacting their education, then that's fine, but there is that obligation to assess. So it's really important that you know that you can be asking for all areas that you have a suspicion that there's an impaction. And I would actually, as just for your guys' like, tips and tricks, I would actually make the parent ask for the assessment because it's slam dunk, case law, law, that if a parent asks for special education assessments and it's an initial one, they've never asked for it, the district has to do it. There's actually even a law that says that if the parent just verbally is like, I think my child needs to be assessed, that teacher, that, that front desk person has to say, oh, let me help you put that in writing. How often does that happen? Not very often. So I, that's why I say like, yes, technically you may have the right to ask as a, as a social worker working with the family to request assessments. But anytime I've had a social worker do that, it's, it's, it's just an uphill battle. Yeah, of course, if you both can uh, um, request it, it's gonna be that much better. But in situations where you might be dealing with a foster family, a foster youth, you might be dealing with multiple family members who are fighting over custody. You might be dealing with a situation where the parent may not be in a position to ask for it. So you may be the person that, that, that can at least get the ball rolling. So as promised, these are the eligibility categories. There's 13 of them. 
Um, we've al already talked about you know, autism. Um, it's been autistic-like. Some of them are going back to autism. It, it, it's changed here in California. Um, intellectual disability, uh, once upon a time, was mental retardation. There's still, I have an 18-year-old right now where in his uh, records from when he was three, so not, not too long ago, still has MR all over it, um, but you know, obviously that's, that's been phased out, um, so we see intellectual disability. About less than, I think, 1% of the children have low incidence disabilities, and that relates to hearing, being hearing impaired, or the, the deaf and blindness. Um, so of all the children with special needs, those are just even more specialized in the types of services that they require and things like that. Specific learning disabilities is where we see a lot of our kiddos with dyslexia, dysgraphia, a lot of those learning differences. Sometimes you'll see ADHD, ADD under there, but most of the time that falls under other health impairment. Emotional disturbance just sounds wrong. A lot of parents don't like their children to be labeled. I, I, it's hard for any child to be labeled, right? Because we all we see is the label, and we see an over-labelization of, of children. But for a while, a lot of African-American children were being categorized as intellectual disability. So it was how trauma was affecting them, um, or it was just easier to just put them all in the special day class, but we had to get them eligible for special education. So again, I'm skewing the, the data and I'm putting them as um, intellectual disability. That's why there, there's a case now, and it, not that they, you, know, you cannot do um, IQ testing on African-American children. You just are not able to use that as the only testing measure to, to place them as ID. Um, oftentimes, though, with intellectual disability, a lot of the school psychologists aren't doing various different types of IQ tests. You could do a nonverbal test, so that could actually show that the child is, is average cognitive ability, but they may have a speech and language impairment that severely alters the way that they um, are presented the information in the assessment. But for the most part, we see a lot of the kiddos with emotional disturbance have a lot of trauma. They have a fear about school, sometimes anxiety um, from bullying and things like that. A lot of the kiddos fall under that category. It's an awful name. People have tried to change it, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're bipolar and you're just so disturbed or anything like that. But oftentimes we see our kiddos with severe depression. Maybe they've tried to commit suicide. They would be eligible under emotional disturbance. And one thing to note is these are not medical diagnoses. This is not based on the DSM-5. These are eligibility categories determined by law. So the IDEA determines eligibility categories. The states and their education codes can tweak them a little bit. That's why Vicki had said that autism and autistic behaviors keeps going back and forth. The eligibility category does not matter on what kinds of services the child will receive, except for the low incidence disabilities. The low incidence disabilities allow you to get a little bit more, but everything else we always um, often say, it's like imagine if there were 13 doors in front of you and each door is an eligibility category. The minute you get on the other side of that door, each one of those doors, it's the same room. You're getting the same thing based on the unique needs of the child. It doesn't matter which door you go through, you're getting the same services. But oftentimes it is a fight between the family and um, the school district of which eligibility category fits this child. Um, it's important for certain instances, um, but it's not supposed to have an impact. We do see a lot of times school districts will have autism-specific classrooms, 
and then they say if your child does not have an eligibility of autism, they cannot go into that class. They're not legally allowed to do that. It's not supposed to matter. But that is something that, that we often see as a big battle. So we have parents that come to us and they say, you know, my child should have OHI as an eligibility category, and it's not. We have autism and we have speech and language impairment. More often than not, we tell them, hey, that's great that you care about that, and you know, we can try to fight for that, but I guarantee you there's bigger fish to fry. There's bigger issues going on, because what they really want is they've been told by some other parent that they have autism services, they have ABA services, um, Applied Behavioral Analysis, because they have an eligibility category of autism. This child might have a diagnosis of autism, but doesn't have an eligibility category, so the parent thinks the only way for me to get ABA services is to have an eligibility of autism. Well, that's not the case by the law. So we say, I'm not gonna attack the eligibility categories more often than not. I'm gonna attack, does this child need ABA therapy? And if the child needs it, that's what we're gonna fight on. So just an important thing to know. So we've been talking about IEPs and it stands for Individualized Education Program, in case you didn't know. So this might be stuff that you guys have already been exposed to. We have meetings once a year at minimum. Oftentimes in our uh, law firm, not the not the nonprofit, well with the nonprofit too, but with our law firm, uh, Amanda and I attend IEP meetings. And if you have us, you're not going to just one IEP meeting for a year, you're, you're probably going to a couple. The reason behind that is if, if there's an issue that's going on, then you need to have an IEP meeting about it. So oftentimes what ends up happening is like maybe the parent calls us and they want us to go to the annual IEP. So we go to the annual IEP, it's in April and um, we kind of go over the goals and things like that. We'll probably have another IEP meeting the following year in October. Just an update, kid just transitioned to a new classroom, whether it was from fifth grade to sixth grade or eighth grade to high school, that's always nice to have you know, a, a, that transition IEP or a check-in IEP, they're supposed to do transition IEPs, but oftentimes we tell parents like, you don't have to wait a year. And, and I've had parents go, I, I didn't know that I could ask for an IEP other than the one that I have every year. And it's like, absolutely yes, especially if your child is getting suspended for something. If there's new behaviors that are happening, you need to have that IEP meeting because that is a document, it's a promise, right? The district is saying within this IEP, here are the goals that we promise that we will work on. Here are the services that go in conjuncture to help that child reach those goals. You know, here is our, our promise to you of what's going to happen within the year. And if something's not working, then you want to have an IEP meeting. Oftentimes there should be progress on those goals. So the parents should be getting progress reports on those goals. I have a plethora of other parents that are like, what are progress reports? I've never gotten a progress report on the goals and it's like, you know, but that's supposed to help because you shouldn't have to wait a whole year to see how your child's right. doing. And, and, and I get a lot of parents who will say, well, I'm just tired of having to wait an entire year to see how my kid's doing. And even if they get the progress reports, they have that issue. And I go, well, we're not going to wait, especially if we're dealing with something, for instance, like behavior. We get kids a lot of times that have behavior and they've had a behavior intervention plan or a BIP for five years. They've had ABA in the school. They've had ABA at home. They've had, you know, they're segregated to a special day class, and yet five years later, they're in the same boat. Behavior should not be something that is always there. A purpose of a behavior intervention plan or behavior support plan is to extinguish those behaviors. So when I have a child that's having severe behaviors that is impeding their ability to be in the general education class, um, I had one kid that um, was in a preschool special education class. His IQ, cognitive ability, was above average, well above average. He should have been in general education. No reason why he should be in a special day class. 
the reason he had been placed in there was because he was having severe behaviors. So my kind of goal with it was, well, he's having these behaviors, so we can't just jump him, jump him in general education because he's going to have these behaviors, right? So it needs to be a gradual, um, gradually be addressed. So with that child, I had IEPs probably every three months for two and a half years. And the, what we did at those IEP meetings was discuss his behaviors and tweak the intervention that we would do. We weren't doing the same intervention all year for three years because we know that it doesn't work, right? Because as a child starts making improvements, we oftentimes need to uh, change the way we're addressing the behaviors. Oftentimes we need to change the reinforcement. If they get older, what worked for them a year ago may not work now, right? So every three months we were tweaking what was happening with the intervention and we were at, once we got the behaviors to a certain level we started putting them into the general education class an hour at a time then two hours then three hours and eventually after two and a half years we got him fully into general education and he's now very successful in that general education class but we had to do that in order to tweak things if we had waited a year we'd probably be five years later and we'd probably be in the same place because if a child gets used to something being a certain way it's less likely for us to be able to make a change so a parent can ask for an IEP meeting anytime they want. They can ask for it every 30 days if they want. We, we don't recommend that. We don't recommend That's a little bit too much, right? We want to give a little bit of time that three months is, is very typical for seeing if something is working or not working. And 30 days comes from the fact that this once a parent requests an IEP outside of like the annual, the district has 30 days to schedule that IEP meeting. And this is all the kind of like the mutually agreed upon time and place. Um, that's a big one too. Sometimes they only give parent one date and time. Parents like I have to, you know, get time off of work, and they're giving it to me three days before. It can't just be three days before. But oftentimes parents just sign yes because they don't think that they can do anything right. else. I had already kind of told you guys that they should be given a copy of the IEP notice in their native language, as well as a copy of the IEP in their native language, and then below are you know list of the people that at minimum should be at the IEP. Oftentimes we see that a district administrator or an administrator is not present at the IEP or the principal will say, well, I'm the district admin. Okay, well, when I'm getting to the fact that I want to increase speech and language and you're saying to me, oh, we have to talk to the district about that, that's not appropriate. Somebody that can make a decision, a program specialist, whoever it can be, should be, needs to be at that meeting to say we can, we can do this or not. They shouldn't have to say, like, we'll, we'll get back to you on that because we don't know. And that's a big problem that we see all the time. And what does that do? That delays everything. Because then what if they don't get back to you for two weeks and then you have to go with a county to that they won't give you that extra hour but what about 30 minutes and it's another two weeks and then all of a sudden you're two months out and parent hasn't signed an IEP they're not working on new goals with the child and if you're just like kind of stagnant so well, and, and making changes to the IEP needs to be an IEP team decision not a district unilateral decision right. so let's say you're trying to discuss changes in programs there's different levels of special day classes um, usually they're called mild to moderate and then moderate to severe sometimes moderate specialized sometimes autism to specific Let's say that a child is in a mild, a moderate, severe class at one elementary school, and that's the only special day class at that school. And the team needs to talk about whether or not they can be in a less restrictive environment, as in the mild-moderate class. But there's no one at that meeting that can talk about what the mild-moderate class is like, what the curriculum is like, what the dynamics of the class, what the teacher-to-student ratio. And so if the district then comes back and says, oh, well, you know, we don't agree to provide this placement, that is a predetermination of a denial, which is not allowed. They're not allowed to predetermine anything. It has to be an IEP team decision. So it needs to be that district administrator there that can say, or someone familiar with that mild-moderate program to say, 
this is what it's like, let's all talk about whether or not that would be appropriate for that child. Um, and when we look at who needs to be there, this is a list of the general people that need to be there as well. But you know, anyone that knows anything about that child can be invited. So regional center representatives, social workers, anybody that is involved, especially if you're involved um, in heavy duty stuff, as if it's like social emotional issues. We've gotten a lot of cases where the child is suffering from some mental illness or mental um, health challenges. And maybe they need to be placed in a residential treatment facility. Um, and maybe a social worker, or maybe because they've gotten into trouble somehow, or there's issues at home, right? Or there's a regional center representative, that they are, they are really important to be a decision, part of that decision to determine whether or not the child needs to be in a residential treatment facility. It's really important to be at that IEP meeting because there's a, another perspective of what's happening outside of school that you could you could provide. So a lot of times people don't know that they can be invited. The parent can invite anyone they want that's relevant, um, and the district cannot say no. Yeah. They will say <laughs> no sometimes, but they cannot legally say no. Uh, typically when an attorney is involved for the parent, they'll want their attorney and the whole thing. But anyway, if we're talking about a spectrum uh, relating to least restrictive environment, we have the general education setting, right? That's the least restrictive environment. That's where we want all kids to start off. Then we go into the special day classes. They're a bit more restrictive because the child is not with general education peers. They're in uh, classes with other children with disabilities. And as Amanda said, sometimes those are split up into two, right? We have the mild, moderate, and then you had a mod severe. One could argue that they're both, they're both restrictive, but the mod severe is usually a bit more restrictive because there's more aids or there's more you know, adults that are providing support. And so it would be you know, least restrictive if the child was in mild, moderate, and depending on the curriculum and stuff too. Once you move to the next phase, which is a non-public school, an NPS, that's a very restrictive uh, placement only because it's typically, it's a private school. We just call them non-public schools because they're certified by the California Department of Education. And they're just a school just with children with special needs. So now the child is having zero time around general education peers. While they're in the special day class, you know, there's mainstreaming opportunities, right? There's assemblies and recess and lunch, even though we know that most of the time those special ed kids they keep them together right but but there's the opportunity right you're in a non-public school there's no opportunity because there's no children um with without disabilities that are there then you go into the most restrictive one of the most restrictive which is what amanda was just talking about the residential treatment centers and that's when the child lives at this facility because there is um, maybe a suicide attempt or the child is a danger to himself or others, there are various reasons, those are very extreme examples, but you can't even live at home, right? Like you have to be in a facility to be treated academically and obviously with medication and, and a plethora of other ones. And then the last, which is, I mean, they're kind of similar, but um, a home hospital placement. So maybe the child has to be in a hospital. There's no exposure to general education peers whatsoever. You may not even be working on um, general education curriculum. And those are the, the most extreme. So those are the most restrictive environments. And when we look at things that are at home, whether or not a student should be in one of these more restrictive facilities, a lot of times districts will be like, well, what happens at home? It doesn't, doesn't have it, we don't, we don't care. It doesn't have anything we have to do with. But anything that impacts a child's ability to be at school, to access their curriculum and learn, is something that needs to be part of the IEP. So we get kids that have severe anxiety and severe depression who are refusing to go to school. We have high schoolers, middle schoolers, the school districts will say, 
well, Johnny would just go to school. And we're like, well, that's easier said than done. We know that the, the parents have tried everything, usually in these cases, to get the kids to go to school, and they won't. Right? So they're not even going to school. So 100% it affects their ability in school because they're not even at school. Uh, but that's a piece that often is missed. Or the child is not having behaviors at school because they're holding it in so much that when they get home they blow up. And there's severe um, destructive behaviors at home, maybe self-injurious. And the school goes, well, that's a home problem. That's not a school problem. We know it's a school problem because the only reason they're blowing up at home is not because of something that happened at home, but because they're finally releasing the emotions and the frustrations that they had at school. And so parent is talking about the child's levels, right, at, at home. And at school, the children's present levels are just where they're at, right? What Are they making progress on their goals? How are they doing academically speaking? What's going on in English? What's going on in math? You're also going to have in the IEP the annual goals, so the proposed goals for the next year. And you, as a district, are looking at, okay, what can the child feasibly achieve within this year with the supports and services that we will be proposing? If the child doesn't make progress on a particular goal or a particular set of goals, the district can't just be like, okay, we're just going to keep this goal and roll it over. Or we're um, just going to move on. Or we're just going to move on. We're just going to drop this goal. They need to address it because there's an expected lack of progress there, right? Or that they, you know, what's another year with the same services? So they either have to tweak the goal and it shouldn't just be like, well, he was at 65%. The goal is 80%. So let's just move it to 70%. No, that's, that's not appropriate either. We want these goals to be... Um, in light of the child's circumstances and we want the child to be able to achieve it and then maybe have you know another goal under that in case that happens really quickly so that's something to look out for in the in the annual goals but that are specific for academic and functional reasons right then we're talking about where the child's placement is what are the related services that are going to help the child so it's always you know goals drive services services drive placement and accommodations and modifications are also something that are typically just skipped over and they're the same thing year after year and it's just like what worked for the child in second grade you know being at the front of the class um, maybe they had lined raised graph paper may, like they may be above that in seventh grade because now they don't need lined paper they're typing things out and maybe the front of the class is actually more distracting than like the side of the class right so that's something that always just you know hey are these working hey teacher what are you doing? You know, I had an accommodation that had to be written in because the teacher didn't allow water bottles in her fifth grade class. And it was like, well, this child needs their water bottle. So that's, that's something to, to look out for too when we're talking about accommodations and modifications. And then just a couple of the other things, extended school year, typically people think of it as summer school, but sometimes um, winter break can be three weeks. And if the child is going to regress in that time, the district should be offering something for the child so that, to prevent that regression. It doesn't happen very often, but it's something that's, that's overlooked. And then when we talk about transition, oftentimes, you think 18, diploma, I'm out of high school. With special education, it's a little different. Here in California, the child can receive services through the district until 20, their 22nd birthday. So 18 to 22 is, is that transition time. So it's not that they're just in high school for an additional four years. There should be an adult transition program. And we should start thinking about that and talking about it at IEP meetings when the child's about 14 and, and definitely inviting the child when they're 16 to these meetings. And a helpful tip for these IEP meetings, if you're gonna go with a parent or if the parent is asking you for advice on like what they should be prepared for, you can ask for documents to be reviewed ahead of time. So if there's assessments that are being reviewed, if there's draft goals, 
what oftentimes is, is the best case scenario is you get those assessments and you get those draft goals ahead of time. The parent can review them. So that if there's any questions about them, you can discuss them. Otherwise, it might be like they give you an hour and you have all this stuff to go over. And next thing you know, you're having four parts of the team meeting over the course of six months and you haven't finished the annual. Uh, because there's not enough time because you know we know that just like the kids the parents sometimes might be visual learners right so if same as getting it ahead of time if you walk into that IEP meeting and they don't have a draft of the IEP or if they're going over goals and they don't have one in front of you you have a right to say hey can I get a copy I have so many IEPs where I won't even start until I have that because I know that the parents more often than not if they haven't received it ahead of time to be told it all orally, especially like these goals where there's so many details, it's a really important thing to make sure that the parent has informed consent before they agree to anything. They can only have informed consent if they are aware of what's going on. So by having that in front of you, you can better figure out like what changes need to be made. Um, so that is something that you can ask for in the IEP. And sometimes it just helps a lot, provide a little bit of, of clarity as you're going through so there's not as many questions. And oftentimes for our Spanish speakers, you're not getting that until a month later. So I've, I've yeah. tried, there's nothing in the law that says I need everything translated to me before the IEP meeting because the district will say we had a translator at the IEP meeting. We had a translator at the IEP meeting that was able to translate all the information that was being dictated orally. And then you will get your um, translated version of the IEP. So even, even if we have an English speaking parent and we ask for the assessments beforehand, there's nothing in the law that guarantees that you even get it. It's one of those situations where the district's like, hey, I got 60 days to do these assessments and schedule an IEP. And you will see the date of that assessment, the day of the IEP, the day before the IEP, like they're not even finishing them, right? So that's, that's kind of like <laughs> their excuse. They say, well, we have 60 days to provide it, but oftentimes it's these school sites are so inundated with so many cases that they're like scrambling to finish their drafts. And it's okay, like I say, I, I get that it's a draft, but the purpose is so that we kind of have some information beforehand so we're just not walking right. blind. And so along with the tips of, you know, asking for things ahead of time, asking for things during the meeting, parents do not have to sign anything that day. You know, maybe they signed for attendance that they were there, but the parent has no obligation to sign anything that day. You know, especially if you didn't receive things ahead of time and everything is, you know, new to them, they have a right to take everything with them and digest it. Maybe they want to take it, maybe you weren't able to go to the IEP meeting, but they want to review it with you because maybe it does, you, you know, you can have some input because you know the child, right? So they have a right to take it with them and then provide consent later. The consent doesn't have to be whole consent. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Um, it can be in part. It can say, I agree to these goals, but I don't agree that these goals lead to a placement in a special day class. I believe my child can participate in a less restrictive environment. So it can be in part as well. Yeah, oftentimes what we'll see is um, the district will, will offer a new service. They're going to offer counseling for 30 minutes each week. And they go, well, if you don't sign this IEP, we can't start the counseling. Well, I can consent in part and say, you know what, I think my child really needs this counseling. I consent to the counseling, but I haven't consented to anything else. And, and oftentimes we'll get uh, after every goal, do you agree with that goal? And like the parents just like, okay, but like, okay, let's like move on. But like the district's like trying to write down in the notes, parent agreed to all the goals. And so then when the parent says that they don't agree, they're like, well, you said at the IEP meeting. Right. And it's just like, okay, calm down. Like that's not what happened yeah. in that moment. They were just saying like, okay, like they're not necessarily consenting to anything, but that's just, those are little things to kind of like look out for. And, and something that we um, had neglected to say is with the IEP meeting notices, oftentimes we'll tell parents to on that uh, paper, not on the back, somewhere on the front, 
that they will be recording the IEP. The parent has a right to record the IEP because maybe their husband's not there and they want them to listen to it. And it needs to be in writing and it needs to be done 24 hours before the IEP. So we just say, look, some there's a little bit of space sometimes. Just put, we will be recording. That's all you need to say. And it's nice to let them know if like the social worker's coming. They don't have to, but it's nice to just let everybody know, kind of have everybody on the same page. But that kind of helps out. Um, one of the last things which, which is stay put is let's say uh, instead of giving them counseling, they're gonna take it away and the parent doesn't agree with that. The parent can agree to everything else in the IEP except for taking away counseling. So what, that ha what happens there is the school is in a state put, right? So they have to keep providing whatever it was that was consented to in the last IEP, which was they had consented to counseling. And even though they agreed to everything else in this new IEP, except for the district taking away counseling, they still have to do that. And then we could get into and, what happens and after. California is a consent state, meaning that the school district cannot do anything with your child unless the parent consents. Um, they can't do an assessment until the parents consent. So even if you guys go and you request an assessment for a child, the school district won't automatically start doing it. They have to provide an assessment plan to the parents, and the parent still does have to consent to that assessment. If they're proposing services, the parent does have to consent before they can start it. If there's a change, they have to have consent before they can, you know, make any of those changes. You know, and and likewise, the parent can withdraw consent. So let's say the school district. One of the classic examples that I get, um, this child will be um, transported on a bus because the school that they're going to is not their home school. Um, they're having behaviors on the bus, and so the school district says it's unsafe for this child to be on the bus without a restraint. So maybe they're put in a harness. Well, I don't know if, if any of you are aware, but there's been several kids who have died on buses over the course of the last few years because of these harnesses. I had one child who overheated when he was in the harness, and it was life-threatening. The school district said, well, this is the only way he can be safe on the bus. Well, no, you can put an aid on the bus. So the parent then has a right to say, you know what? I no longer agree to have this harness on the bus. I know I agreed to it before, but now I've learned. I don't agree to it anymore. I'm withdrawing my consent. And then the school district is no longer allowed to provide that because they need that consent to move forward. And so um, when a state put scenario kind of happens where, you know, maybe the parent just doesn't agree with anything in the IEP. So oftentimes I see this with my Latinx clients, right? They just, they don't agree to anything for years. Somebody told them, you have a right not to agree. And so then their only like tool in this battle is like, I'm not going to agree to anything. It really hurts a parent when that happens because it should be the obligation of the school to be like, you don't agree, let's have another IEP, let's try to discuss it. That is just a reasonable thing to do. If it gets to a point where they do that and then they try, okay, let's try an alternative dispute resolution session. So maybe we're gonna agree to something that you know is gonna be put into a settlement agreement, but we just don't want it anywhere in public that we're you know giving you this, right? And so that, that's something else the district should try. If the district is still not getting any movement, then what they should do is they should sue the parent. They should sue the parent because they're so confident that what they're offering is a free and appropriate public education that a judge would agree with them. It's been happening a lot more and it was a case that had just come out in 2017. So we're seeing the districts be more aggressive. Now, they should try to do something. They, they shouldn't just like, oh, you don't agree, then I'm gonna sue you. That, that shouldn't happen. They should try a couple things before, like I had just pointed out. But oftentimes, but even before that case and even since that case, I mean, we're, we're having parents that just aren't signing anything and it really puts the child in this box where 
I don't know. Definitely the last IEP that you can send it to is from two years ago. So the child's probably made progress on all their goals. Um, the, you know, the services are just stagnant. So it's really something that we encourage parents to, you know, get active in calling our nonprofit now yeah. um, in, in trying to figure out if, if we need to be involved right as advocates and or and, attorneys yeah everything on this page is, is very typical of what we do everything before that with the IEP process we do um, we are a part of a lot of that is that collaboration we try to collaborate as often as we can because as we said these kids might be in this system from 3 to 22 you know that's a long time to be in an adversarial relationship with the school district so we try when we go to IEP meetings to rebuild the relationship more often than not when there's a problem it's because of miscommunication uh, I had one case where the parent came to me and they said you know we really want to change the program that that my child has program 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 they kept saying that and I'm assuming they had said that in IEPs many times before the child was in general education receiving um, resource specialist support in that classroom so when the parent said I want to change her program the school district thought they mean class so they kept saying well a special day class is not appropriate but that school never in two years thought to ask the parents what they meant by program. That was one of the first questions I asked them. I said, what do you mean program? Because she's in general education and that's probably appropriate for her. And they go, well, the language arts um, like program that they're using, we, we think that she might have dyslexia. We want to use the scene stars from Linda Bell. And I go, okay, that's not what the district thinks you mean. And they never once thought to ask what you meant. So in two years, the parents were fighting over what intervention program, but the school didn't, didn't even know what the parents were asking for because they didn't think to ask the questions. And the parents didn't know that the school, that the word program meant so many different things, right? And so I came in and, and you know, we try as much as we can to say, look, this is what you mean and this is what the, the parents mean. Let's get in the middle. You need to, and, and this is with English speaking. So imagine with parents that don't speak English, yeah, you've got double translation that's going on. So a lot of what we do up until this point is trying to collaborate, trying to be that bridge between the family and the school district. However, fortunately, more often than not, doesn't work. And this is why we even have a job. We'd love there to be a day where our jobs do not exist because all children are receiving equal opportunities in school. Fortunately, that's not our reality and that's you know why we're here today. So a lot of this is, is what we end up doing. So we've mentioned that we have our law firm and our nonprofit. Um, we provide a lot of pro bono services, which allows us to file due process complaints against the school district. That's essentially, and a lot of people think, oh, well, you're filing a lawsuit against the school district. I think when we first started doing this, a lot of our friends and family thought, oh, or you know, colleagues, oh, what area of law do you practice? And we tried to say, oh, we do, we represent, you know, we civil rights, we represent children, living disabilities, and everyone thinks. Well, that's great. That's really noble. And then they say, well, wait, who do you sue? And we go, well, school districts. And then they go, oh, that's not good. They don't have money as it is. Well, if there's one thing that you guys can take away, school districts do have enough money. Um, if you listen to our podcast, we've had a couple of episodes where we talk about that. It's not about the money that's being there. It's about where the money is being allocated. It's being allocated more often than not to the administrators, not to the classrooms, not to the teachers, not to the appropriate services. And so a lot of times when we're battling through due process, it's about money. And that's really hard for parents to hear. We often, uh, when we're trying to figure out what are the resolutions that we're asking for, we have to say that when the school district is looking at what we're doing and what we're asking for, they're gonna compare. What is it gonna take for this to go to a hearing and what is it gonna take for us to resolve? And if what's gonna take to get to resolve is less money than going to a hearing, they'll resolve. But if it's not, they'll go to hearing. 
you know, which is a harsh reality, but more often than not, about I said 95% of cases in California end up settling um, before a hearing, so they don't always proceed. A lot of families try to go it themselves, without attorneys, because they can't afford an attorney, and that's where our nonprofit comes in to be able to provide that that pro bono legal aid. Yep. <laughs> you guys, we went through that very quickly. We're running short on time, but I think we have a couple minutes for questions. If anybody has questions, and it could be about anything from our presentation to if you've come across something that you just aren't sure of. Yes. Do schools have an obligation to a certain amount of hours to to provide? Uh, certain. So the question is, do school districts have an obligation to provide a certain amount of hours? And my follow-up is, hours of services, hours for school? For school education. So there are, so we've gotten this a lot where we have 7th, 8th graders, we're trying to get them a reading program, and we go, we'll just pull them out of PE. There are certain, some certain you know, guidelines through the state of California and the Department of Education of California where there's a certain amount of minutes that a child will need physical education. So in terms of special education, it's not like I could extend the child's day from six hours to 12 hours because I want all the, the programming for this child. However, um, with a lot of our high school kiddos, what we'll do is we'll place them part-time for socialization in their high school placement. So they'll do art and drama and then for the afternoon, maybe they'll go to a non-public school or a non-public agency to do English um, reading and writing. But those are all certified, so they're still getting credits. It's a bit different with elementary. You have a lot more flexibility in elementary. You could do a 45-minute or an hour reading instructional program because it could fall under. So there's a lot of wiggle room. Yes, there are certain numbers that need to be abide by but in terms of special education it's not like you have to have 256 minutes daily of specialized academic instruction they put that in the IEP because they're like detailing out for the state that like look this child is here all day because if the child is there the school gets money right? now if they put in the IEP that they're going to provide that 250 minutes of specialized academic instruction they are required to do that 250 minutes of Specialized academic instruction. They're not allowed to do less. It's like a contract. Right. But it's a case by case basis. It's really individualized. Yeah. There's a question over there. Are your services like provided from like anywhere in California or is it just only Southern California? So the question is if our services are anywhere in California. And the answer is yeah. We pretty much, uh, in fact, I think I booked a, a flight to go to a mediation in um, San Jose in a couple of weeks. So we, we cover anywhere in California. Our primary practice is Southern California. So anywhere from Ventura County down to San Diego to the Inland Empire. That's typically where we get, because a lot of our cases come from word of mouth, but we, we realize there's probably about 50 to 70 um, attorneys in the state of California that do what we do, and half of them represent the school districts. So, and there's seven million students in the state of California. So we'll go wherever we're needed, pretty much. Any other questions? Okay, our information is on here, and of course, if you're interested in, in just learning more, we do have our podcast. We, um, are, I think, just hit our one-year anniversary of the podcast, so we've been doing it once a week since last year. So there's a number of episodes. You can go and see if there's a topic that, you know, is something that you'd like to learn more about. We have a lot of guests that come from different walks of life that affect this community. It's the Inclusive Education Project podcast. You can find it on Google Play, Stitcher Radio, uh, iTunes. And anywhere that you get your podcasts. We talk just as fast on <laughs> podcasts. All right, thanks, guys.